Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. After years of warning some scientists, the global climate crisis is impacting Americans across the country. This year, we've already seen unprecedented ice storms across Texas and one of the worst droughts in modern history in the West. But what kind of changes should we expect here in Connecticut? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we explore how our changing climate is disrupting our state. We'll hear from a researcher about how coastal towns can adapt to rising sea levels. And we'll learn more about a burgeoning offshore wind industry in New England and how it could lessen our reliance on natural gas. But first, over the last year, the pandemic has changed how we experience the outdoors. Connecticut trails saw a 53% increase in use in 2020. But that increased use also means increased exposure to ticks. The tick population in Connecticut has exploded over the last 30 years, and with that exposure comes an increase in dangerous human pathogens. Kirby Stafford is the chief entomologist for the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. He joins us to talk about how climate change is affecting the tick population and what we can do about it. Kirby, welcome to Disrupted. Glad to be here. Thank you. So I have to be completely honest with you. As we were preparing for this segment, I was both fascinated and absolutely terrified about ticks here in Connecticut. But before we work through my fears and angst on that, talk to us about the history of the tick population in New England and Connecticut in particular, because it seems like that population has grown quite a bit over the last few decades. Yeah, it's definitely emerged and uh, been expanding its range. The history actually goes back to, uh, you know, colonial times. Uh, there was a Swedish naturalist named Pierre Kalm who kept a journey of his travels. And it's a fascinating book. But anyway, uh, in several places in that journal, he notes how bad the ticks were. Uh, particularly in one location in New Jersey at the time, he noticed, even though the place be ever so pleasant, uh, you couldn't sit down without having a swarm of them on your clothes. So, uh, and, and then about a century later, the state entomologist in New York at the time, Aza Finch, noted that along the route that uh, Peter Calm had uh, traveled, not any ticks could be found. So, you know, what happened during that intervening late 1700s to the late 1800s? Well, you know, the trees were cut down for farming. Uh, the deer were hunted out. Uh, it's estimated in 1896, there was only 12 deer in Connecticut. So here through the 20th century, we've seen the regrowth of the forest. We've seen the deer population as well as other wildlife uh, research. And so the tick uh, basically survived on isolated areas on the end of the Cape um, uh, and also end of Long Island. So uh, they just simply reestablished, reemerged, and they've been emerging and expanding their range ever since. There's early records of this tick uh, on some of the islands off the Cape from the 1920s as well. So, um, yeah. So basically, we went from lots of ticks to no ticks to now a recent expanding population of black-legged ticks. 
So let's talk about that expanding population and also some of the new types of ticks that we're seeing in New England. And one that I've heard about now is the Lone Star Tick that has migrated north. What is that all about? So the Lone Star Tick is responsible for the majority of tick bites in the southeastern United States. Uh, But it has been moving steadily northward here. Uh, It started moving into Long Island in the early 1990s, but we just simply never picked it up here in Connecticut. And I I think it had to do with, uh, you know, there's kind of like an isothermal line where uh, where we had slightly colder winters. With our warming winters, the tick has managed to get a beachhead now in southern New England. So uh, we started to see an increase in the number of Lone Star ticks, small numbers, but nonetheless, more and more coming into the tick testing laboratory here at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Then in 2017, I discovered a very heavy population of a Lone Star tick on a peninsula down in South Norwalk. Um, And now we're starting to pick up. We have two well-established populations of Lone Star ticks in Fairfield County. And we're picking up, starting to pick up more and more individuals across uh, towns in the southern tier of counties here in Connecticut, uh, even some of the northern areas as well. They're scattered individuals, but they're increasing. You've also said that they're increasing, but also more aggressive. And one of the things that we're starting to learn more about are some of the diseases that this particular tick can carry and the impact that it can have on its human host. Talk to us about that. Okay, so quick summary. We have, of course, the three main diseases, uh, and there's some others, but we have several diseases associated with our black-legged tick or deer tick. So we've got Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, babesiosis, hard tick relapsing fever, and Powassan virus. Now with the Lone Star tick, you can add its primary disease that's associated with it is ehrlichiosis. Um, And there are several others, heartland virus, bourbon virus. But the one that tends to get a lot of people's uh, attention is red meat allergy. Uh, This is uh, an allergy to a sugar called alpha-gal for short that is present in mammals, but it's not present in primates. So we don't have that sugar. So when it can be introduced by the tick in the feeding process, some people can develop an allergy to the sugar, which can range from mild gut upset to hives to full anaphylactic shock. This relationship between human behavior and human choice and the tick population that we see in Connecticut, as you said, has historic roots. But what's driving this emergence and this growth right now in our region? You know, should we be concerned that climate change and climate challenges may be a part of this as well? Yeah, like so the emergence of the Lone Star tick, and we also have another tick that we've discovered here in Connecticut, a southern species, the Gulf Coast tick, are able to move northward uh, into the more northern end of the mid-Atlantic states as, as well as up the eastern seaboard because of our milder winters. It allows them to survive through the wind, those colder uh, winter months. In fact, we did some overwintering studies uh, looking at the impact of insulating leaf litter and snow uh, through those winter months. And for example, the Lone Star ticks, even though the survival rate was much lower than here in Connecticut, we still had Lone Star ticks surviving uh, as long as they had some cover in coastal Maine. So, um, you know, we're, we're expecting that them, that range to continue to increase at least along the coast here in New England. And the Lone Star Tick is present here. So now southern 
um, Connecticut, it's in Rhode Island, and it's in certain areas in the Cape Cod area. What's the level of cooperation between the work that you're doing here in Connecticut and these other states who are also addressing these changes and what it means for the residents in their areas? So my colleagues in the other states, like we are, are also monitoring uh, the tick populations. And uh, we do test the ticks, uh, you know, for the presence of various pathogens. The focus primarily continues as far as testing goes on the um, black-legged ticks, since that's the main tick people are still going to encounter. So uh, as far as the risk goes, I mean, most people are still going to encounter the black-legged tick. And also this year happens to be a really big year for American dog ticks too. So there's still going to be the two main ticks that people are going to run into, but the, yeah, but increasingly we're going to see people encountering uh, over time here, the Lone Star ticks, possibly the Gulf Coast tick, and then we also have another tick. Uh, it's an exotic species, the Asian longhorn tick, um, which was first detected in New Jersey in 2017. It's now found in 15 states. Uh, at this point, it's primarily a livestock pest, but it feeds on dogs, but it can build up really huge populations because it reproduces parthenogenetically. There's no male ticks. So, are, you are you worried about this? Like, does this give you pause or is it exciting to see these changes as a novice to this? The more you tell me about these new populations, the more concerned I am. So where do you stand on this? Well, obviously, as an entomologist, it's I find it ex it's challenging and very interesting, and exciting, but also, as you say, very concerning. And so as we're seeing an increased public health threat, uh, it just makes it more important to get the message to people on um, tick control, tick bite prevention. Uh, and, and, and that message really hasn't really changed. I mean, Lyme disease continues to be the primary disease of concern. So, uh, and we figure that roughly three quarters of the tick bites and Lyme disease cases are actually acquired around the home. And then 20% are on outside activities, hiking, camping, things like that. So let's talk then about what people can do so that they're not just encountering this information and, and concerned, but they are actually being proactive about how to keep themselves safe, their families. And I, like many other people in our state, adopted a new puppy during the pandemic. And as things are opening up and we're getting outside more, what can people do to protect themselves? So the first thing is that, uh, bear in mind, the black-legged tick is found primarily in the woodland edges or woodland areas. Uh, so your high risk is mainly usually around the perimeters of the properties, although you need to think shade and cover. I mean, I've picked up ticks, let's say like in Pakistandra ground cover right next to front doorsteps where the hose was coiled up, you know, the faucet. So um, think shade, think cover. Uh, the majority are in the woods. Uh, or on the edge ecotone. And then even there, the majority of the ticks that come into the lawn are within about three yards of the lawn edge with the stone characteristic New England stone walls, the forest edge, ornamental planting edges, and things like that. Um, so anything that you can do to just kind of, you know, keep the grass cut, uh, open things up a little bit, you can, you know, put wood chip barriers or landscape barriers around the edge pull the swing sets away from that really heavily wooded area out more into the open lawn. Cause that's that, that wooded area is what we call the tick zone. 
So uh, that's your highest risk area, but not your only risk area. And so if you're, and use a repellent. So if you're going out hiking uh, or even doing heavy yard work, uh, you know, uh, yard work, gardening, children playing, you, you know, consider using a, either a clothing or a uh, skin-based repellent. So for skin, you could use something like DEET or picaridin or uh, oil of lemon eucalyptus are the three most common that you can pick up, say, at the drugstore or something like that. Uh, you want to use about 20%. The other alternative is uh, permethrin. Uh, that's actually an insecticide. It's available as a clothing repellent that you can spray on your clothes that, you know, that you might be wearing for really high risk activities like yard work. Um, and, or you can buy pre-treated clothing. And that's actually very effective because any ticks that come in contact with the clothes are killed. And that's what I use if I'm doing, if I was doing tick work in the field. And over 30 years of going after ticks, uh, I've had very few tick bites and I actually haven't gotten Lyme disease yet. That's great. And and we oh, yeah. we know you will keep that streak running. You mentioned <laughs> you mentioned yard work. And so I'm curious about what's the role of chemicals in this in in prevention and protection. And I know that many people are concerned about using chemicals. But is that an effective way to keep the tick population down and perhaps minimize threats on your property? Some of the uh, uh, insecticide applications are extremely effective in killing ticks. Um, and so that certainly is a, a possibility uh, or an option in terms of reducing the tick population uh, around the high risk areas in the yard. Bear in mind, these insecticides will also impact non-targets or any other insects, even beneficials that could be sprayed. So you, you'd want to avoid your garden area. You would want to avoid, you know, wildflowers, anything where bees or butterflies would be, things like that. So you've got to really think about how you target those. There's a lot of push for um, so-called botanic or organic or safer materials, at least at this point in time. Unfortunately, most of them don't seem to be really that effective. And Bear in mind, you kill the ticks where you make the application and reduce your risk, but that doesn't change the risk of picking a tick up somewhere else. There was actually a huge study where they looked at, uh, you know, they treated hundreds and hundreds of homes with either water or one particular pesticide uh, in three states, including Connecticut. Um, and at the end of the story was is that there was no difference in tick bites or cases of Lyme disease, you know, between the treated homes and the untreated homes. And I think that has to do with how people use their yards and where they're actually picking up ticks. And then the other story is, of course, whenever you've been outside where you might pick up a tick, do the tick checks. What do you recommend to people the best or most effective ways to do the tick checks and how often they should do them? Well, daily, anytime you've been outside, when you come in, uh, just part of your routine, particularly if you're taking a shower, it's a good time to just check your whole body. The ticks can be attached anywhere on the body. Uh, although the highest risk areas would be, you know, where your clothes are a little tighter and your underwear is a little tighter, you know, where the tick may crawl up and stop. Remember the ticks do not fly. They do not jump and are not dropping from the trees. Um, ticks are down in that very low vegetation. Uh, you'd be surprised at how fast they can move up your legs and therefore be end up in your head, you know, attached anywhere. So you want to be carefully checked everywhere. 
Uh, and if you find a tick, I prefer fine tip forceps because particularly right now, bear in mind that it's the nymphal stage of the black-legged tick that is out there and it is responsible for the majority of Lyme disease cases. And not every tick is infected. So you're talking about 15 to 20% of the nymphal ticks are carrying the Lyme disease bacteria and even lower infection rates with the other human pathogens. So not every tick bite is necessarily an infected tick, but it does take uh, 24 to 36 hours for an infected tick to transmit those Lyme disease bacteria in the feeding process to you. That's why those tick checks are important. So even if the tick is infected, if you get it off in that first 24 hours, so that's why the daily checks are important, you can uh, mitigate your risk of getting Lyme disease. That's Kirby Stafford, Chief Entomologist for the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. To learn more about the station and how you can submit ticks for testing, visit our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. After the break, we'll hear from a UConn professor about ways coastal communities are facing rising sea levels. And later, what the rush to offshore wind means to our state's energy production. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the hour, we'll talk with a reporter about Connecticut's role in the offshore wind market. But now, Connecticut's coastlines have experienced an onslaught of flooding and storms over the last decade. In 2012, Hurricane Sandy caused over $360 million in damage to our state. And with the increase in extreme weather thanks to climate change, coastal towns are looking for ways to better protect themselves. Jim O'Donnell joins us now. He's professor of marine sciences at UConn and executive director of the Connecticut Institute of Resilience and Climate Adaptation. Circa works with local towns to build waterfronts that are more resilient to flooding by using our natural environment. Jim, welcome to Disrupted. Well, thank you very much. Circa released this report on sea level rise in Connecticut, and the report said that sea level in our state is expected to rise by 20 inches by 2050 and continue to increase. What is driving this rising sea level here in Connecticut? Well, yeah, first, I just want to clarify the the prediction is up to 20 inches by 2050. So there's a lot of uncertainty in it but the upper bound of what is likely is 20 inches. And so we thought it was prudent to plan for the upper bound. In now, what's driving it is, is pretty simply uh, global releases of greenhouse gases that cause warming in the atmosphere and the upper ocean. And that leads to melting of uh, ice caps and expansion of the water. So if you heat water, uh, a finite mass gets bigger so the water in the ocean is getting deeper because it's getting warmer. And then in addition, we're putting more water into the ocean by melting ice at the ice caps. It's pretty much as simple as that. What does this mean for coastal communities here in Connecticut? What may be the impact or some of the consequences of these changes? Yeah, so 20 inches uh, may not seem like much, right? But, but the, what it does is it causes uh, water levels due to storms, which were 
infrequent in the past. Maybe so perhaps a storm that may occur or the flooding from a storm that may have occurred once every 10 years on average in the past will in the future likely come every one or two years. So that if uh, the cost of repairs to your home or the cost of insurance for your home in that area or a road, and roads and pipes and water systems, etc., are all vulnerable to flooding. And, thing, and you're designed currently typically for the storm that might occur once every 100 years, right? So we estimate how high that water level would be and design infrastructure to uh, be resilient to that. But what this change in mean sea level does is it changes the level at which, or the t t changes the uh, frequency at which we expect that water level to be reached to something much shorter. So the 100 year might become the one in 10, right? So it's a 10 times increase in the risk. So that risk and expense are important for motivating some people to care about this. Because there may be people listening who say, look, I this is unfortunate, but I don't live in a shoreline town or in a coastal community. Why should I care about what's happening? Talk more about this, about the, the impact and the consequence for people across our state. Well, there are two, uh, I guess there's three big things people will notice, right? The, the first thing is that almost all water treatment plants in cities and towns around the, the, coast, of nine, the coast of the United States are built right at the shoreline. And they're there because uh, water tends to run downhill in pipes. And so it makes sense for water treatment plants to be at the bottom of the hill so they can collect up all of the, the waste and treat it and discharge the water to the ocean. And so all of those, all of those, all of that infrastructure is vulnerable, and we all use it. One thing that would people would notice right away would be if the water treatment plants shut down, right? Uh, so secondly, there are also many roads in coastal Connecticut which developed to to skirt the little inlets and streams that uh, 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 inter intersect the, the shoreline of Long Island Sound. Settlements occurred. Where fresh water and access to the ocean was was convenient, and so these roads then connected around the marshes, and so they're all very vulnerable to flooding. Um, so th those are so those are two. The third thing is that there's a thing called a national flood insurance program, and in which the federal government uh, and it, re it requires people who uh, get federally subsidized mortgages to buy insurance against flooding. And uh, the, the risk in those insurance policies is all held by the federal government. Insurance companies do the paperwork, they sell it, they do, pay the claims, but the risk is all taken by the, the taxpayer. And so the more risk there is around the shoreline, the higher the obligation of taxpayers is going to be at the moment. You know, it's unfortunate that sometimes people only care when it hits their pocket. But to hear it in that context of how this will impact so many areas of, you know, what things cost, but also who's harmed by that makes this something that I think we all should pay attention to. One of the things that 
I appreciate about Circa's work is not just putting forth the problem, but also putting forth ways that we can address this to better protect vulnerable communities across our state and really, as you said, protect everyone. Talk to us about the Resilient Connecticut Project and what the phases are of that project. Yeah, that, that, that's a big project. So, so I think one of the challenges of dealing with climate change is that the root causes these emissions of global of greenhouse gases can't be resolved by any one locality or even country. Right? The the, uh, the atmosphere gets mixed really rapidly. So any molecule that uh, gets released from a power plant in Connecticut. Uh, a year later, it could be anywhere in the world, right? So, so coordinated action across the world is required, and it's urgent, and we need to do that. But irrespective of what happens uh, in the global politics in the next 50 years, sea level is going to be unlike, undoubtedly higher, and it could be up to 20 inches by 2050. And what happens after that depends upon greenhouse gas emissions, but irrespective of what we do for the next 50 years, that's going to happen. And it could be 10 inches or 20 inches, right? So the thing that there's consensus about an action is necessary and it can be effective locally is adaptation to the consequences of sea level rise. And so we can identify pretty clearly which, uh, what infrastructure is going to be at risk and towns and states and countries have the capacity to reduce that risk. In fact, I think they have the obligation to do it. And what Resilient Connecticut is trying to do is, is uh, take a broad view of benefits from flood risk reduction. So, for example, I mentioned the water treatment plant, right? After, after Sandy, Connecticut identified at-risk water treatment plants and spent money right away, mostly federal money, but some state money to, to protect those water treatment plants by building berms around them or raising pumps and things like that. But the surrounding housing didn't have any action, right? So what we're doing is trying to figure out how to uh, do urgent projects which protect critical infrastructure, but also provide additional values. And some of those values would be protection of people's houses, raising uh, raising roads in order to create uh, economic development opportunities, perhaps, or basically look for synergies uh, to make the money that we spend in flood risk reduction have broader, more valuable, more equitable outcomes. One of the the options that we're starting to learn a little more about are living shorelines that, as you say, are, are new for Connecticut, but have tremendous potential. Talk to us about what living shorelines are and also how they may fit into this broader notion of addressing infrastructure here in Connecticut. So for, for centuries, people have been uh, trying to change the shape of the shoreline for a variety of reasons, building homes, building docks, etc. And, and uh, the downside of building a big concrete seawall or a revetment, which is a big pile of rocks, basically, the, the downside of those is that they often uh, reduce coastal erosion uh, one site, but lead to enhanced coastal erosion elsewhere. And, uh, and those are the, basically the two approaches that have been used for these centuries. So in Connecticut, 
that problem has, was noticed about 20 years ago and uh, uh, restrictions were been placed on hardening the shoreline further. So the, the idea of the living shorelines is to, is to try and uh, protect the shore from big waves which cause er, uh, erosion and uh, exacerbate flooding by uh, installing uh, things that have got less negative impact and more positive impacts. The positive impacts would be additional fish habitat because fish, you know, li li like to uh, live in areas which are not all uh, homogeneous. So rocky outcrops, etc., which are characteristic of natural areas of Connecticut, can be built on, uh, in, in in front of places which are eroding to reduce that rate of erosion. And there's a great example at Lynn Point in Old Sandbrook. And one at, at Stratford Point in Stratford. And, and New Haven has got a great project that's in planning. It's likely to be built next year on East Shore Park. And another one on uh, the west side of the, the harbor along 95. And these are, these are more complicated. Right? They, and uh, the, the, one of the things that we've been doing is trying to track quantitatively the uh, effectiveness of these types of infrastructure and document it so that engineering companies who who uh, generally have the obligation to build and install this kind of stuff are more confident that the designs uh, will work and also they'll be uh, knowledgeable about how to do it and to how to estimate the costs of the projects. The projects that they've done before are also always easier for them to cost. You can be more confident about it, and so they can be a little bit more uh, accurate in the cost estimates. Because if they can't be accurate and they don't want to lose money, they've got to be high, right? So getting accurate cost estimates and accurate performance estimates, documenting them and, and disseminating that is a goal of Circa. So I want to ask one last question, thinking about you know, next steps and, and what's happening and, and where we see some of those projects that exist and that are being planned. Talk to us briefly about how effective these new structures or these new projects are compared to more traditional infrastructure as we think about where to target those investments and what the potential outcomes and benefits could be. Well, I mean, I think you, you, you that's a question, right? Like, uh, we've got hundreds of years of experience with breakwaters and revetments and seawalls, and we know how much they cost, how, how well they work, and how long they last, right? And we've got maybe five years of experience now with Stratford Point, right? And, and uh, about six months experience with Lynn Point. So, you know, the, I, the point I'm, what I'm uh, arguing is that... Uh, we need to study these more for, for another decade, maybe, and we have to build some more options and we have to inventory their effectiveness. So theoretically, you know, they're not going to be the answer, right, to, they're not going to stop flooding uh, everywhere. The only way we could do that would be to build big walls of concrete in lots of places. And so that may make sense, like around Millstone Nuclear Power Plant, for example, right, or a water treatment plant, it's really critical that, that those things don't get flooded ever, right? So we'll design those for a thousand year event or a risk of one in a thousand per year, 
right? And, and that makes a lot of sense to me. But there are other places where maybe they can tolerate, so like the, the beach parking at Miskomikit, for example, in Rhode Island, um, a marsh area with a, a, a walking trail, right? And, and uh, th those can be flooded. And then a few days later, they can be cleaned up and, and uh, put back to use. Right, and, slot, and maybe we could reduce the erosion rate in, uh, in critical parts of it, or build things that are a little higher, so when it does get flooded, it doesn't get destroyed. So those are two different ways of doing things. Right, and the difficult choice is which ones. So there are two obvious ones: a nuclear power station and the park. Then there's lots of place, lots of uh, ranges of uh, infrastructure between those two limits, in which choices are different, and the costs are different. And that's why it's not easy. <laughs> it's clear that we need more choices, more research, more investment. But at the heart of it, we need more commitment to prioritizing this for all of us. Jim O'Donnell is professor of marine sciences at the University of Connecticut. He's executive director of the Connecticut Institute of Resilience and Climate Adaptation, also known as CIRCA. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. To get a better idea of what living shorelines look like, you can find photos of those projects on our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. Coming up, how offshore wind could help Connecticut get to zero carbon by 2040. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont stated his plans for the state's energy grid to be carbon-free by 2040. The goal would require the state to decrease its reliance on natural gas and increase the use of renewable energy. Now, offshore wind is expected to power over a half million homes across the state by the end of the decade. But what are the challenges we face in making that transition? J.D. Allen is assistant news director and reporter for WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut. He's reported extensively on offshore wind in the region. I asked him to tell us what the New England wind market looks like today. There are a ton of leasing areas up for grabs in the Atlantic Ocean right now, a lot of them. Uh, off the coast of New England for offshore wind right now. Uh, the U.S. has 17 of these leasing areas um, in total in the Atlantic. And, you know, already we have a handful of turbines off the coast of Rhode Island. And we just got that big approval in Massachusetts for Vineyard Wind, which is the largest offshore wind farm in the United States with 3.2 gigawatts of electricity uh, expected for 2035. So there's a lot of optimism in that industry. And right off the coast. So I heard you mention Rhode Island. I heard you mention Massachusetts. I didn't hear Connecticut. What does it look like for Connecticut right now? Connecticut's going to get uh, some of the bang for the buck a little bit later on. Um, you know, there are isn't a uh, an Atlantic-facing coast for Connecticut. So a lot of the deals that are being done are with states other than Connecticut, like New York, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. Um, but where Connecticut is going to see some of that bang for the buck is in its historic harbor ports, like Bridgeport and New London. Um, there, there's a lot of talk, and more than just talk, there are contracts in place uh, to develop these ports to be where some of the staging and construction and then 
future operational hubs of where some of these offshore wind farms uh, can be um, built up. How do we get there? Because I know that state officials have said that they're committed to our state being zero carbon by 2040. And that's really not that far off. But we also know that half of our energy comes from natural gas. So how could these offshore wind projects, the kinds of potential projects that Connecticut is considering, how could that get us closer to that goal? Well, so let's let's break that down a little bit because there's twofold of a, a conversation there about the reliance on fossil fuel as well as our growing need for renewable energies. So let's tackle renewable energies first. So we have the Revolution Wind Project, um, which is uh, slated for waters off the coast of Montauk and New York and Martha's Vineyard, and that's Connecticut's commitment uh, to Orsted and Eversources project in New London. So they are redeveloping the uh, state pier in New London to uh, to bolster that project offshore. Um, and the Connecticut Port Authority is the one in charge of that. And because of that, our our state is going to receive, you know, 300 megawatts of electricity. And that's going to help this state towards its goal. So not only are we putting a workforce um, in place to be able to build up these projects, but we're also getting some of the energy for it. Um, the same kind of deal is being done in Bridgeport for the Vineyard Wind Project, that Park City Wind Project that you might have heard of. That's going to be built up in Bridgeport Harbor, like completely redoing an 18-acre waterfront industrial property, um, kind of where the ferry heads out. And that's going to bring thousands of jobs over like a 25-year period. But we are also getting 800 megawatts of electricity from that project for that commitment. This kind of commitment for it to be successful, for it to be sustainable, seems to require a lot of collaboration and conversation, not just across towns and across states, but also across levels of government, the conversation with the state governments and also the federal government. Is that unique in this domain where we see states talking about how do we work together, particularly because issues of infrastructure tend to be something that people only want to think about what benefits them? I think all the states right now are competing for the attention of these um, growing number of offshore wind developers. And, you know, this competition is some good competition. It means there can be collaboration between states, as you've pointed out. But it's kind of like frenemies. You know, uh, they are competing for, I mean, every harbor from Bridgeport to New London to Providence to uh, Boston to, I mean, you go all the way up the coast. Everybody wants a slice of this, you know, wind turbine pie. So it's, it's, a bit difficult when you talk about, all right, you know, we're all going to join together to try to get net zero uh, by our target dates, which are sometimes decades apart. But then, you know, a lot of that collaboration is going to come into place when it talk when talking about how to bring that energy offshore to the coast. That's going to require incredible transmission systems that might have to go past one state to get to another state to feed the electric grid. And, you know, of course, every state wants the best for their own. So there's going to have to be a lot of um, uh, handholding in this frenemy agreement. 
for a lot of people, this may all sound like a good thing, right? They may not really understand how it all works or, or how it's going to happen, but it sounds like a good thing. But then there are others who say, wait a minute, how does having access to 800 megawatts really have an impact on what's happening here in Connecticut? Talk us through that. What does that mean on the ground of having that kind of access, even as these frenemies are competing to see who can be first? So there's kind of the green versus green argument. Um, And then there's that goes back to the natural gas that you're talking about a moment ago. And then there's a lot of the issues that some other states are dealing with or having to deal with a little bit more head on and that Connecticut's kind of shied away from um, because they don't have you know, a coastline that would possibly have turbines in the distance. So the green versus green argument, the real basic structure for that is that, you know, as we're building up renewable energies, there are uh, environmentalists out there that say, okay, stop natural gas, stop fossil fuels, because if we're ever going to hit these objectives, we need to be serious and we need to limit fossil fuel. But before we get there, if we're talking about vineyard wind, which is the biggest, that's really the only um, large scale one in our backyards, you know, it's going to take us time to get there. They're optimistically saying 2035. That means we're going to need this bridge fuel, meaning fossil fuels, uh, to be um, operating while we get there because our need for energy is not going to go away while we build up these renewable energies. So that's a really, really basic argument for this green versus green in terms of energy. Then there's green versus green when it comes to the environmental. What is it? What's the impact going to be on our wildlife and our marine life and our waters and our ecosystem when we start to put these metal tons 800 foot tall turbines into the water and that disruption can be really really scary for uh, marine scientists but also you know industries that rely on that wildlife like fishermen you know fishermen up and down the coast have been screaming and yelling saying wait 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 we're not against renewable energies but you're going to be replacing one sustainable source with another sustainable resource us we feed your families you can't do this to us without really taking a look at the issues I want to talk about some of those issues and and the concerns that have been raised by different sectors It is difficult to do anything in this country and in our state that does not somehow become politicized. And this is one of the issues that has become politicized and in some ways become partisan. Um, You know, Texas Representative Louis Gohmert asked the Forest Service, could you change the orbit of the moon in order to offset some of these climate concerns? And now we're seeing political parties line up in order to defend fishermen and defend the fishing industry and, you know, guard against what they see as this creep on the industry. Do you see a bipartisan interest in Connecticut and across New England of moving some of these things forward, even as we think about the environmental impact and the impact on industry? Climate investments that have to do with jobs and job creation, that's bipartisan. Both Republicans and Democrats love creating jobs and love saying that they've created new jobs and new industries and new places where, you know, our education sector can now uh, feed into these um, offshore goals. That may be where the agreement kind of stops. You know, the the push for renewable energy is 
um, as growing more and more bipartisan. Um, but uh, and the defense of fishermen is uh, you've probably heard both Republicans and Democrats come out for them. But we've kind of seen a different sh- structure in, in how fishermen and their concerns have been dealt with. So if we look just at fishermen, the last four years under the Trump administration um, was supposed to be a big thumbs up to uh, offshore wind. It didn't happen. These projects did not move forward in four years, even though they were pitched before Donald Trump was president. Now, the reason for that, in part, is because his interior, his Department of Interior was, as they would say, focused on hearing these concerns from the fishermen. That was one of the reasons why they had stalled the progress on offshore wind. And um, the fishermen felt like they were being heard because of it. And it gave them more time to be able to push and lobby to say, "Okay, we need real research being done out there. Fishermen are not saying we don't need renewable sources. They are saying you need to do your homework before you disrupt our job. Now, under the Biden administration, um, his, you know, he's super psyched about offshore wind. I mean, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 is a really big goal and creating 80,000 jobs and, you know, billions of dollars in capital investments. There's a lot of good news there. But for fishermen, when they hear that, they say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to be creating 80,000 jobs, but what about my job that I have right now? And some of that stalling um, has turned into full press on the gas, um, meaning we're moving forward with offshore wind. And that's where they're getting concerned because these developers see it. They know it. They're trying to apply for these lease agreements. They want to start development. They want to start the onshore um, building process for these operation hubs. You know, building up the state pier for offshore wind could also mean less ports for commercial fishermen to sail out of because those navigation ships now need to, you know, uh, chart the waters for these turbines. It's scary for them. There's so many dimensions to this, J.D., and, and I always wonder who benefits and who benefits in this sense economically from this. So when we see these projects that are happening, we're talking about job creation. We talk about the concern of disrupting and displacing current jobs. Who are the people that are leading in this area? Are they Connecticut-based companies that are leading this conversation? Are they more global companies What's the economic incentive here for this kind of investment? So there's a lot of buddy-buddy in these partnerships, really between local, and I'm going to use this term local to really describe New England-based, but local energy companies partnering up with international wind industry like powerhouses. And so there really is a global economy at work here with the amount that these companies and these partnerships are investing into local projects like the state pier, like the Bridgeport Harbor project, like pumping money into the research institutions and colleges to research different aspects of concern, like the impact on commercial fishing. You know, there's a lot of money being tossed around um, because they know that they're going to make bank and more when these turbines are up. But, you know, there are people on the ground like these commercial fishermen that are not really seeing those types of benefits. Now developers have offered fishing groups money 
um, to say that, hey, we want to compensate for the expected uh, earning loss that you might incur. You can either take a chunk of change now or you can have maybe a greater amount of money over the next few years. And there are fishermen who are like, yes, please, I'll take it now because the pandemic sucked and I need relief. Um, but there are also fishing groups that are like, wait, 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 don't take any money yet. We need to look at this big picture because you could be the last fisherman of your family to do this job. J.D., what does the future of this industry look like? And what is it that we should be doing right now to prepare for that future? You know, listening to you about the money that's being thrown out there, the research that needs to happen also raises the question of how do we prepare people to be able to have jobs in this industry or to make best use of it? What's the future for Connecticut? After hearing from many people that I've interviewed, both um, in the the development side of this, um, energy experts, commercial fishermen, there needs to be a lot of patience. This is exciting. There's a lot of money being talked about, but you know we've got decades to go before this is really happening here. So patience, transparency for the media. Sorry, I like to know what's going on, but also for the stakeholders involved and people who might not be directly involved, like the commercial fishermen. Everybody needs a seat at the table to really be able to talk about and see action on what their concerns are. Patience, transparency, and realistic expectations. J.D. Allen is assistant news director and reporter for WSHU. J.D., thank you so much. Kalila, it was fun. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Talarski. Now, before we go, if you have story ideas for Disrupted, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be back next week.